When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're bringing you two of our favorite stories that have aired in years past, this time on the theme of fear and danger in the lab, from Rebecca Brockman and Ali Mustafa. Before we dig into these stories, though, I want to let everyone know that Story Collider will be holding its third annual Proton Prom fundraiser in just a few weeks on May 2nd at the Bell House in Brooklyn. If you're not in the New York area, you can also attend online. This is a great opportunity for you to support Story Collider and the work that we do, as well as hear some stories from some pretty amazing guests. We've got Zach Wienersmith, the cartoonist behind Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial and the author of best-selling pop science book Soonish. We've got astrophysicist and folklorist Dr. Moya McTeer, author of The Milky Way and Autobiography of Our Galaxy. We've got actor, comedian, and host John Fugelsang, and we've got incredible comedians Josh Johnson and Janine Garofalo. That's right, Janine Garofalo. It's going to be a truly awesome night of science stories hosted by comedians Gastor Almonte and Natalia Reagan from our board and introduced by our board president, Eric Jankowski. In an effort to make this event as accessible as possible, the tickets are a little more affordable this year than they have been in years past. The live stream tickets are $15 and attending the show in person is $25. So we hope that you will come out and support the Story Collider. And after the show, in true prom style, we hope that you will join us for a dance party. Once again, Proton Prom is on May 2nd. Get tickets at storycollider.org. All right, now with all of that said, let's dive into our stories now. Our first story today is from Rebecca Brockman. It was recorded in February 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. It's about 11 p.m. on Friday night. I am alone in lab cleaning up after an experiment and I accidentally stick myself with a needle full of diphtheria toxin. So you guys will all know diphtheria as that thing that Mr. T always gets on the Oregon Trail. Um, all right, so you know, think back to fourth grade, right? Everyone, you play on the Oregon Trail. Everyone just puts their, their friends on their team. Really? These, these are 10-year-olds. So, you know, Mr. T, Doc Brown, RoboCop, this is my team. Uh, and anyway, and Mr. T always got diphtheria. So diphtheria is an infectious bacterial disease that killed a lot of people during the time of the Oregon Trail. It's, it's usually respiratory. So the bacteria grows in your throat and your lungs, and it secretes this toxin that essentially melts 
the top layer of cells and forms this, this grayish, greenish white film, this pseudomembrane, and it, it's blood and it's bacteria and it's dead cells. And patients would die from inhaling this and not being able to breathe or from uh, heart failure as the toxins circulated through their blood, or they would just end up paralyzed from nerve damage or in a coma. We use the toxin in the lab to kill cells, and I have just stuck myself with a needle full of it. I strip off the two pairs of gloves that I am wearing, and I run to the sink, and I am running water over my hand where I've stuck myself, and I, I'm, not, I'm not scrubbing it, I'm just sort of squeezing it and trying to encourage bleeding, which means you don't get the blood come out, the toxin come out. So this is the when you've seen movies and someone's bitten by a snake and they're trying to suck out the venom, and I, I'm doing this, and the water's running, but I also know that water does not inactivate diphtheria toxin. So I am seriously considering pouring bleach in this open wound. I am alone. I am not only the only person in the lab, I am the only person on the floor. This is like those really tense two minutes in the movie where the hero has to decide whether to pull out their own shrapnel or suture themselves with the hotel bathroom sewing kit or cauterize themselves with the curling iron that their cheating ex-girlfriend left behind. And I decide, yes. <laughs> Pouring bleach on your skin is not a good idea. Pouring bleach into an open wound is a worse idea. But between diphtheria toxin and bleach, I will take bleach. So I'm doing about three things simultaneously. I am washing my hands almost automatically. I'm on the phone with my mom. And in my head, I'm running the calculations. Because I wasn't exposed to diphtheria. I was exposed to diphtheria toxin, which is not what Mr. T gets on the Oregon Trail. The toxin is what makes the disease deadly. Toxin is basically synonymous with poison, and the lethal dose is one microgram per kilogram. So I'm about 45 kilograms. That means that it would take something like the amount of, you know, one five hundredth of a grain of salt. So, so take a grain of salt and divide it into 500 sub-pieces. And one of those is what it would take to kill me. The powder form of this, the way it's sold, is in a vial. It's about one milligram. It looks like a thimble full of indelible snowflakes. And it is also 200 times the lethal dose. More than enough to kill everyone here. So if I, I'm stuck, <laughs> if I'm stuck with that, I'm basically dead. I had, I had sent an email earlier that quoted the directions that came with this stock vial, which say to reconstitute the powder with one milliliter of water using a needle and syringe. And the only other thing I have written in this email is, this seems like a bad idea to me. <laughs> Accordingly, I have diluted the stock to only two times the lethal dose. So now the question is, how much is in a drop? I'm off the phone with my mom, so I make one other call to the guy that I had been out to dinner with earlier, Tim. And I, I, don't, I don't know in New York, you know, what the protocol is for, you know, what date you go shopping together or you meet the parents or what date you go to the ER together. Uh, but in this case, this is, this is date number two, basically. You know, date number one being dinner earlier. And I'm like, oh, uh, hey, hey, Tim, you know, will you take me to the ER? And, and he said, yes. He said, yes. Great. Uh, 
So we we walk. Fortunately, the hospital is only down the street. And you know, we walk, we make the usual small talk, and we step in to the Columbia Presbyterian emergency room around midnight in Harlem on a Friday night. To say this hospital gets busy on the weekends is it's not quite right. It's more like it gets farcical. Uh, being shot, a gunshot wound, does not get you to the front of the line unless you are bleeding out. So I go in armed with the material safety data sheet, which explains how dangerous diphtheria toxin is. And I, I really urgently press the triage nurse about how quickly we need to get me to see a doctor and the Central for Disease Control, the CDC, on the phone. And she says, all right, take a seat. So I do. Uh, where I have been stuck, you know, the ring finger, uh, where I've been stuck and then also subsequently poured bleach over, um, and my middle finger, they're both, they're turning red, they're starting to swell. The skin is sort of uncomfortably taut, and the, the joints are getting really stiff. And, and I know, I know that every minute I am sitting there, this toxin is coursing through my body sort of irrevocably and moving into my cells and possibly, probably, killing me. So I call Environmental Health and Safety Office and get their answering machine. Uh, there, are, there are some people that are good at being patient in, in most reasonably trying situations. And, and I am usually one of those people. This is not one of those situations. So I go back to the nurse who is thrilled to see me and I explain to her that, that I am poisoned because that's straightforward enough that if diphtheria is like being bitten by a snake, I have been bitten by a thousand snakes. And she looks at me and she looks me up and down and she says, you look fine. So the reason it takes so little diphtheria toxin to kill you is there are so many different ways it can. It can kill skin cells, it can kill liver tissue, kidneys, lungs, brain, pretty much any organ in the body. And as a result, it's anyone's guess whether you're gonna die from, from your lungs giving out or a heart attack or liver failure. And uh, confusingly for the nurse, these effects are, are delayed. You do not see them for a while. So the lung and the heart, you don't see that effect for about one to two weeks and nerve damage can take up to eight weeks for you to see. But, but it is happening right now in the first 24 hours. Once the toxin is in your cells, there's nothing to do, it's too late. So I might look fine, but I'm probably not and I am definitely not going to be if I sit in this waiting room for the next few hours. So after some tasteful yelling, uh, we are, I am admitted into the ER and uh, Tim comes with me and we, we walk down the hall and we pass this guy who's sort of strapped to a gurney who is yelling hysterically that the Gatorade he's been given is the wrong flavor. We all know what that's like. And I go in. <laughs> And the doctors come over and they have no idea what to say or do because they've never seen this before. And I mentioned that I had called my mom and that wasn't just because, you know, something happened and I my, called my mom. It's because my mom is also a doctor with a specialty in toxicology and she knows the head of poison control in New Jersey. So on her end, 
through this sort of uh, carpool snow day style phone tree, we are working our way up to the CDC because diphtheria, even though it has mostly been eradicated in the United States, it occasionally comes up and as a result, there is an antitoxin. There is an antitoxin, but it is not available commercially anymore because, well, because no one gets diphtheria anymore, but the CDC has it stockpiled. CDC is in Atlanta. So not only do we need to get them to release the antitoxin, we need to wait the time it takes to put it in a helicopter and send it up to New York. So the CDC is calling. Initially, the way this works is the doctors will be on the phone and I feed them the information. So CDC on the phone, doctor, the CDC asks the question, doctor asks me the question, I give the answer, they feed it back to the CDC. And we keep getting these calls because we're sort of working our way slowly up the hierarchy. And eventually this evolves into them just handing me the phone when the CDC calls. And this goes on for hours. There is a pretty obvious logic to what should be happening here. You have the science, you have the material safety data sheet, there is an antitoxin. There is a pretty irrefutable logic to what should be happening here. But medicine is very bureaucratic and most doctors part ways with science and, and theory somewhere in between first and second year of med school. <laughs> I don't know Tim well enough to have any idea what he is thinking at the moment. He looks bored. <laughs> Uh, but having him there is actually unexpectedly calming because it's preventing me from falling to pieces because I would be too embarrassed. I, I'm a scientist now, but I used to be a poet and it'd be really easy for me to spend this time romanticizing my inevitable death. And Tim, Tim is all science and having him there makes the whole thing so much more mundane. <laughs> the doctors come over and they ask me to take a urine test, which is surprising because it's the first thing they've done other than take my vitals. It's a pregnancy test. Finally, around three in the morning, the CDC calls back and they let us know that someone with the authority to release the antitoxin will be reaching out to us in the next 24 to 48 hours, which is too late to make any difference. <sighs> I am not happy about this. Not surprisingly. Uh, this is that scene in the movie where the shipwrecked survivors realize that the rescue party isn't coming. This is also where it is worth mentioning that this is not the first time that I have been exposed to diphtheria toxin. And not, not just virtually on the Oregon Trail. I have been exposed before. We actually, we all have. When I was two months old and four months old and six months and a year and a half and four years. Because diphtheria is part of the routine vaccination series we give children in the U.S. And it's actually part of the same vaccine that includes tetanus. So also every time I had gotten scraped with something rusty, I had gotten this vaccine. And it's, it's unique in that it's not just the bacteria, but they also put in dead pieces of the toxin because that's what kills you. So I have some immunity to diphtheria toxin, but this type of immunity is very slow to come online and it only revs up in proportion to the amount of toxin it comes in contact with. So the only thing I can think of at this point is give me a booster, give me another injection of this vaccine so there's more toxin in my blood, more but dummy toxin, so I can start making more proteins, these antibodies against the toxin. And the doctors are like, okay. 
because that's as logical as anything else. So they give me an injection of the vaccine and they send me home because there's nothing else to do. I don't know how, but I must have slept because I wake up the next day so stiff. It's so stiff that it hurts to lift my arms and everything's really, really hazy. But on the plus side, I'm not dead. But on the realistic side, that doesn't mean anything because I would probably be perfectly fine for days until some organ failed and it could be any organ. Over the next two weeks, they monitor my vitals. I see a bunch of specialists, mostly because they are curious. Uh, the CDC calls and, and they tell me I am the first reported case of diphtheria toxin exposure and say, you know, the vaccine strategy was not a bad one. And, oh, oh, also the antitoxin was at JFK. 30 minutes away from us by cab. I once flew 5,000 miles and drove what ended up being about eight hours through these really treacherous, pitch black, uh, Grecian winding hills. So winding that I bet they were the inspiration for the labyrinth, for the Minotaur, just to see Delphi. And I got there and it was closed. So I hopped the fence. At a national landmark and a UNESCO World Heritage Site in the post 9-11 era, I hopped the fence. And I can't remember now why. I can't, I can't remember how any place or object or event could possibly have been that important. Somehow, in the face of death, all the things that I aspired to in life, getting a PhD, owning a peacock, anything to do with the word <laughs> career, all seem arbitrary, trivial. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, we all know that we're going to die. But we don't. Not really. Until we do. It occurs to me that if I am going to die in my sleep, I should probably clean my room. <laughs> and about two weeks later, where I was initially stuck, this little dot, about the size of a period in a Word document. It turns white, and it dies, and it falls off. And that's it. I'm fine. Maybe. Rebecca Brockman. Rebecca is a neuroscientist, a writer, and a pioneer in the field of preventative psychopharmacology. Well, before we move on, a few things to note. We already talked about Proton Prom on May 2nd in Brooklyn. Please join us. Tickets at storycollider.org. Uh, but please also remember you can check out our website for all of our upcoming live shows across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. In the next few weeks, we have shows coming up in New York, Dallas, and D.C., and in May, you can find us in Boston, London, and Seattle. For more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. 
And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the story collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Our second story today is from Ali Mustafa. It was recorded in November 2018 at Jack's Urban Meeting Place in Boise, Idaho. It's part of one of our shows in collaboration with Boise State University. I used to work with the U.S. Air Force in Iraq and as a civilian contractor uh, back in 2006 till 2012. I did a lot of data analysis and logistics support for our troops over there. Um, my office was an underground bunker and uh, I spent most of my time facing my laptop and reading emails trying to fix a lot of screw-ups that we did over there. And uh, one day I was running upstairs and uh, holding my super hot microwave lunch, so excited and so determined not to waste any minute of my precious lunchtime. It's my time with the Middle Eastern sun, the sun that will make you 100% sure that the global warming is not a hoax. <laughs> I didn't care how hot and how dusty it was. I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed seeing these soldiers struggling with their gears and their armors and uh, um, counting how many Blackhawks landing and taking off. I, I just freaking loved it. And while I was talking to two new officers and I was actually briefing them about their mission in the red zone, the sirens went off. It was so loud and so disturbing. Somebody shouted, incoming. I said, who's coming? One of the soldiers shouted in my face, it's mortars, you moron. Run, run, run. I didn't have time to think. I just run into nowhere because I couldn't hear the explosions. I just felt the buff in my chest and a lot of them. I didn't know where to go or where to hide. So till I saw one of the birds not far away from me. So I throw myself underneath it 
and um, crawled to the middle, squeezed my, um, hugged my legs and squeezed my neck into my body armor, trying to protect myself. But I didn't know the bird is already on fire. It was a direct hit until I start to smell the plastic and uh, the, mel the, the metal was deforming and it's cracking. The heat just start to rise up. I turn my head into the ground and start to dig a hole by using my fingernails. And, but I, I tried to bury my head there, and, but I wasn't fast enough. The heat rate was so fast. So I didn't know what to, what to do. So I unbuckled my, uh, my body armor and hold it up and tried to protect my head from the dripping melted metal that started to drip as like hot red lava inches away from my head. And suddenly I, I felt like I've been struck by a thunder in my hand as one of the drops like hit my hand and burn it. I've been trained to control pain mentally and not to show any emotions. I was like blank. But I know that's it. This is it. This is the end and I'm done. So I told my shahada or my prayers and tried to escape away from the moment and I start to think about my, um, my lunch and how the bugs and the explosions is going to ruin it for me now. And, and then uh, everything went blurry and I stopped feeling my, the pain on my hand and I actually, I don't, I don't remember when the, the medics pulled me out. And, but I surely remember like when I looked up and I tried to see the sun, but it was so dark because of the smoke coming out from the helicopter. And I tried to answer all the silly questions that the medics tried to ask me, like, what's your name and what day we are in. And there was one dude he would start poking me with needles and everywhere in my body and asking me if I feel them. I was like, what the fuck, dude? Like, just, just stop hurting me. <laughs> he just pissed me off. And <laughs> yeah, and uh, I didn't feel happy when they pulled me out. I, I felt my life is going down the hill. Um, I don't know if they pulled me out or I'm still there. I didn't feel it. I couldn't see my son for two years after that. I tried to quit my job and become a civilian again. I moved to the US and tried to get away from Baghdad madness and escape to a city where there is no sirens and there is no incomings. But the dark smoke followed me to Boise. I was stuck in low paid jobs and no employer will accept my degree in chemical engineering. And there's no fun, no life. Like, go to work, go to bed, that's it. But deep down, I know I can make the future. I'm, I'm a fighter. It's a war and I have to win it. That's, that's nothing for me. For God's sake, like, I, I survived the mini holocaust by only a small scar on my hand. So I decided to go back and do a second degree in engineering at Boise State. And during my second semester, 
I applied for a job, for a, uh, a, research, a research assistant job uh, with one of the most distinguished professors at BSU. And um, I, I know I'm, I'm not going to get it. It's far away from me. But anyway, I, I did the interviews. I applied. I did whatever he asked me to do. And I just, like, forget about it. It's not going to happen. I just focused more on my classes. And while I was studying for my midterms at the library, um, I received an email from my PI. He said, you got the job. I was like, no emotions. That's my training. I literally walked down from the library and crossed the street to the church and started jumping like a kid. I, I couldn't believe it. I love this job. It's, it opened a lot of doors for me. And opened a, it's an opportunity for a new life here in Boise. So my PI assigned me for a new experiment where, where we will cast uh, single crystals. And uh, I have to melt my alloys and uh, till 1,200 centigrade and cast them into a mold. And the first time I did the experiment, I was watching, I, would, I turned on the furnace and I've seen the material getting hotter and hotter and it turns into bright yellow, thick liquid dripping into a mold. I flash back, hit my brain when I remember that like, the melting metal of the helicopter dripping inches away from my head and suddenly the scar on my hand start to hurt me again. I panicked, I, I freaked out. I turned off the furnace and stepped back. I, I didn't know what to do. But I have to do it. I have to prove myself. I'm not a quitter. This is my life now. I've, I've survived everything. I survived car bombs. I survived mortars. I, ha I survived hostile environment, discrimination, language barriers. You name it, I survived it. So why should I stop? I kept doing it. Next day, I went back and tried again and tried harder. But it's, it's not happening. We're not getting what we are supposed to get. The science, the math is saying we have to get it. But it's not, it's not doing. So I went back and I talked to, I asked my professors a very stupid questions and I didn't care. And I flipped every stone and I just tried and tried and tried. Two months later, my uh, BK is my research teammate and I, we're doing an X-ray imaging for one of the latest ingots that we got and boom, we got something. I, my eyes froze on the monitor. I couldn't, I couldn't talk. I turned to BK and told him, dude, we got it. <laughs> I went back and I started to take my lunch um, outside my lab near the engineering building. And the dark smoke is getting fade. It's fading. And soon I'm going to see my son again. Thank you, guys. That was Ali Mustafa. 
At the time the story was recorded, Ali was an undergraduate engineering student at Boise State University, pursuing his second degree after receiving his first bachelor's degree in chemical engineering with emphasis in chemical industries from the Technological University in Baghdad. The Story Collider is so grateful to Rebecca and Ali for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, along with Managing Producer Misha Gajewski and Senior Podcast Editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by me and Ben Lilly and by me and Liz Neely, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Misha Gajewski will be back next week with more stories. For now, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.